So if this is uh, one, of your, one of your first times with us, let me just explain what we're doing now because we're turning our attention to God's Word. And this fall, we are specifically march, marching our way through the book of Colossians. Colossians is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote. And it's a book, it's really a letter to a young church in the city of Colossae. We really don't know a lot about the city because it was uh, destroyed uh, just a few, like a few decades after Paul uh, wrote this letter, and but so this is it. As we come to this to this letter today, Paul has been has been laying out this beautiful reality. He's been re- laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. How Jesus is the one who created all things, sustains all things, and redeems everything. So what this means is that every single sphere of our life is really touched and even set apart by God. And what was going on with the Colossians, and this is how we're putting it, is that the Colossians were actually growing bored with Jesus. They, they were taught the Christian faith in an incomplete way. And so Paul is writing this letter with the, the goal to give them the fullness, the full understanding of Jesus Christ. Because there were teachers who were saying that if you want to have a fuller understanding of Jesus, well, you have to return to your Jewish religious ways. Or you have to return to your uh, Greco-Roman philosophies or experiential mystery cults. That's what's going on with the false teachers in this time. And today, we're coming into the passage in Colossians when Paul is not holding any punches. He is just laying this false teaching out for what it is. He's, he's revealing that this is sheer religiosity. It's awful. And so this is what we're looking at today. It's Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Uh, you can read along in your worship guide, or you can read along on the, the wall behind me. So let's give our careful attention to God's word. Here's Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards... In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we look at and consider your word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts, and so that we would come to see uh, the ways that we, we have lived um, contrary to your design, that you would convict us of our sin, but you would also uh, give us assurance of your love for us. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
On October 30th, uh, 1517, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther took this uh, long piece of paper, and he took this long piece of paper and nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Martin Luther was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, and he came to see, and he even saw this in his own life, he came to see that his life and the entire uh, Latin church that was throughout the western part of Europe at the time was defined by religiosity. And one of the best examples of this religiosity was through the practice of indulgences. And this is one of the key things that Martin Luther protested in this set of what has been come, has been come to be called the 95 Theses. And, but the practice of indulgence was this, is that for a price, you can atone for your sins. That within the, the, the concept of, of Christianity at that time is that if you were a, a sinner and your sins were not, excuse me, if you were a Christian and your sins were not atoned for, you would go to purgatory. And so these indulgences were a way that you could get out of purgatory and into heaven. And so just to be very clear on what this means is that you could buy your salvation. You could atone for your sins for a price. And you, so you could buy your salvation through the purchase of indulgences. And scholars and historians agree that when Luther nailed those 95 theses, when he nailed those items of protest and items for discussion to that church wall, that is the event when the Protestant Reformation swept and be, well, began, begun and then continued to sweep Europe. And in a similar vein, the religiosity that was uh, pervasive in Latin, the Latin Western Europe church is the same type of real spirit and religiosity at work in Colossians. And Paul is turning his attention to this religiosity and he issues a stunning indictment. He says that if, if you are living this way, if you're following this teaching, you are not even a Christian. And he says that if you would live under this teaching, you would disqualify yourself. If you live under this teaching, you would condemn yourself. And so just to be clear at this time, I'm using this word religiosity in a negative sense, if you haven't picked that up yet. But in our language today, the word relig religion has both a positive and a negative connotation to it. On the positive side, and we see this embraced within Scripture, but religion is, is what, refer, what the word we use to is the word that we use to refer to the beliefs and the practices of a, of a people. And so the Christian religion, and this is how James puts it, is that religion, pure religion that is pleasing to God, is one that serves widows and orphans and keeps you uh, holy. That's the picture in, uh, in James 1.27. That's a very positive use of the word. But the word that, how I'm using the word religion and religiosity today is in the, the negative sense. And this is how I mean it, is that when we use the word re religion negatively, it is when we find our identity and our value and our, in our significance in our, in our actions. In other words, religion is what you do and you don't do. Religion is when you find your value in, in your moral performance. And what Paul is saying here in, in, this, in Colossians, he's saying that religion is dangerous. If, you're, if your identity is rooted in what you do or don't do, that's dangerous. Because that 
means that you are finding your identity and your value and your significance outside of Jesus Christ. So Paul is issuing this harsh condemnation here. And, and the point, one thing that we need to think about right now is that perhaps you're thinking like, well, hey, I'm not a religious person. There's this one author who puts, this is how he, he puts it, that life is too short to pretend you're not religious. That's how one author put it that way. And I want to continue with that thought. But just before we, I, we get into this, let me just point out that the, the big picture, the, the argument that Paul is really making is this. Jesus saves you from your religiosity. Jesus saves you from your religiosity. Within the Christian faith, the sole basis for our life with God, the sole foundation that we have to hold on to is Jesus Christ. God's love is yours because of Jesus. God favors you because of Jesus. So your life with God does not depend upon what you do or you don't do. Your life with God does not depend upon your performance. It doesn't depend upon your religiosity whatsoever. Your life with God depends solely, exclusively, and only upon Jesus Christ. That's wonderful news. We get to let go of our we get to let go of our drive to prove ourselves because we don't have anything to prove because Christ has already proved us before God. And so this as we look in, in this text, there's three angles I want to really look at. And these are like the three uh, things that Paul draw, draws out for the Colossian Christians. That if he says that don't be judged, don't be condemned, and don't be fooled. That's really the outline that I want us to think about today. Don't be judged, don't be, uh, don't be uh, disqualified, and don't be fooled. And so let's start with, by thinking with this idea of don't be judged. And this is returning, let me just return back to that author that I mentioned. Like he has this book. Uh, I forget the author's name right now. He's a professor at Belmont University in Tennessee. But this book is entitled, Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Let's just think about that for a moment because perhaps you're thinking you're not a religious person, but I want to point something out because the reality is we are all re religious people. We all fought, like base our lives around what we do and what we don't do. Our, our lives are constructed around a certain type of religiosity. Here are just some, some examples, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm poking fun here. But I'm using these examples to really just demonstrate that we are religious all the time. Like, for example, if you are a, a white 30-something, you need a beard. Beards. I see beards. If, it is, if it's fall, if it's October, you're supposed to be wearing flannel and boots. If, if it's also, like, Starbucks keeps moving it up. But if it's fall, you need to go and have a pumpkin spice latte. Like, these are just some silly examples for sure. But there's some other ones. And so perhaps you do CrossFit. I don't do CrossFit. I have a lot of friends who do CrossFit. But if you do CrossFit, the first thing you need to do is talk about CrossFit. That's the truth. And you need to have a follow a paleo diet. You need to eat meat all the time. And like, I don't care if you don't throw up. You need to keep doing CrossFit. That's CrossFit. And then also if you uh, do yoga and like, it's, like, it's, it's like you have to embrace the entire uh, lifestyle. You need to have, wear clothes that are made exclusively out of plants. You, you, you need to follow a, a diet that is truly a, a plant-based diet. And so if you go green, uh, then you need to recycle 
you need to follow an organic diet. You go to Trader Joe's, and instead of uh, uh, and and you when you go to Trader Joe's, you you don't use the uh, paper bags they provide for you. You reuse the plastic bags you have at home, or the wonderful, fantastic bags that you get that are free from like schools and so forth. That you can, they're fantastic. My point is that we are we are actually very religious people. And like we're having, I'm glad you guys are catching the spirit here, but I am because I'm pointing out some items that are really good caricatures of our society. And this is, but let me just give one last example, and it does turn in a more serious way. But just this past week, journalist Emma Green, uh, she writes for the Atlantic. She focuses specifically on religion within the American culture. But just this past week in the Atlantic, she wrote this word, politics may offer a form of meaning-making, especially if they are disconnected from other forms of ethnic or religious identity. And her point is that today, like, we are, we are becoming more and more and more politicized, but it's actually, we're not, but her point is, we're not actually becoming more political. We're, we're actually becoming more religious, but we're using politics to bring about the meaning and the value that we have in a religious way. That's Emma Green's point. And so the, the whole point is that we are religious people. We base our lives, we structure our lives around what we do and what we don't do. We find meaning in our identity in obeying the rules. And in fact, what happens, like think about what happens if you don't do those things. If you don't, like if you're doing CrossFit, I don't pick on a friend here, uh, he told me the story, if you, if, you don't do, if you do CrossFit and like you just, like you know what? I'm not going to talk about CrossFit all the time. And he's like, my CrossFit workout buddies look at me funny. Like, I, I, I use that because, to demonstrate that we are judged. We judge others, actually, when they do not follow our set of the rules. That is what happens within our life when we live according to a religious way. And that is exactly the type of atmosphere that found its way into the Colossian church. And commentators on, on the book of, like, scholars who look at the book of Colossians, you, they universally agree that there's a false teacher in, in, in Colossia, in Colossae. And th- this false teacher is taking bits and pieces from Judaism and f- Greek philosophy and, and the Roman cults and merging them together. And so you really have this, like, version of, of syncretistic Christianity. That's what's kind of going on there. And, but these false teachers were saying stuff like this, that if you want to have a richer life with God, you actually have to keep the Old Testament dietary laws. If you want to have a richer life with God, you have to abstain from alcohol. If you want to have a richer life with God, you need to keep the Sabbaths and the new moons and the festivals. And I just want to point something out, is that like, if you look at the book of Acts, is that the dietary laws of the Old Testament have been completely fulfilled in Christ. And we, we hear this word, and I think this is Acts 10. You can look it up later. But it's uh, at Peter's at uh, Cornelius' house in that entire massive chapter. And, but there's a vision, and God says, Jesus says to Peter, in a vision, do not call the things that I have created unclean. These things are for you to eat. And so Jesus has really changed how, uh, like, how God's people should practice the dietary laws. But also let me point something else here. Is that these false teachers went beyond Scripture by saying you can't even drink alcohol. You can't even drink wine. But the first miracle that Jesus ever did was turn water to wine. 
It's like, so these false teachers went beyond God's word to really constrict and, and enslave the conscience of, of these Colossians. And so that's the type of teaching that's going on. And Paul pinpoints the problem right away. That the dietary laws, those were about Jesus Christ. Those new moon festivals were about Christ. The Sabbath was about Christ. So these things in his words, verse 17, those are shadows of the things to come. Those were things that were about the person of Jesus Christ. And so these things were shadows. These things were mysteries about the person to be revealed. And Paul has said like three times by now that the mystery of God has been revealed to you, and that is Jesus. And so the point that Paul is making is that when we make Christianity about the rules and about our performance, we lose Jesus. When we make Christianity about the rules, we lose Jesus. And this is what the Bible refers to and calls sin. This is how uh, author Tim Keller defines sin. Sin is looking to something, someone else besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God, becoming your own Savior and your own Lord, as it were. And we lose Jesus. So in other words, we lose Jesus when... Because we are saying we can rescue ourselves on our own efforts. We, can, we lose Jesus when we act that the good life and achievement is accomplished through our actions, what we do and what we don't do. But when we apply this to God, our life with him is actually a transactional relationship. Let me explain what that is, and I want to use um, the words uh, from author, musician, podcaster Lisa Gunger, and this is how she put it, and this is, she's reflecting on a moment in her life when she and her husband were wrestling with infertility, and this is how she is thinking about it at that point, that at that time, my whole perspective on my life, on my faith, has been a transaction. If I'm good enough, if I pray enough, if I do enough, then I will either uh, then I will get a baby or have and have the good life. And so what Lisa in that moment is critiquing and lamenting about her own understanding of her own life with God is that her entire life with God has been dependent upon her religiosity. And Paul is warning us of. And when our life with God is dependent upon what we do, our performance becomes a source of self-righteousness. If I pray, then God should do what I want. If I go to worship, then God should do what I want. If I read scripture, then he is in my debt and he owes me something. That's insidious. That's ugly. And when we think about religion in this way, then it's clear. It becomes clearer to us because it shows us that we are viewing our, our actions and our behavior and our moralism and, and, and more as goodness that contributes to our salvation. You're trusting in yourself and slowly... But surely what you'll see about yourself, what you'll discover is that your heart is becoming full of pride. And what ends up happening is your, your heart becomes full of judgment where, where you actually condemn others and judge others because they don't live life according to your religious ways. And again, let me just uh, go back to Tim Keller. This is how he puts it. Um, in his book, Prodigal God, he says this, and this is my last Keller quote, but being religious is a more spiritual condition than not being religious. 
And religious people would say, how dare you say that? I'm at church every single Sunday before the doors even open. But what Jesus says, in effect, is that it doesn't matter. Our religiosity, our, we have nothing to offer, nothing to add to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are saved and by God alone. We are saved by what Jesus has done for us. In other words, the only thing that has qualified you is Jesus. All of us are sinners in need of grace and where we are completely dependent upon God's kindness, God's love to us. And so the only, the only way, the only reason why we are qualified is because of Jesus. And this is why Paul, in verse 18, goes on to say, don't be disqualified. Let me, let's lean into this. How is Paul able to say, don't let anyone disqualify you? Now, other translations, I don't know if you, have, if you have your Bible with you. I don't know what translation you have with you. But other translations will put it this way, don't let anyone condemn you. And I, and I appreciate that because that my mind, when I hear that word uh, condemn, I, I go to Romans 8, which was our words of assurance or that Matt read for us earlier. And just by way of reminder, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation through Jesus. The reason why that's the case is because God has qualified you. In fact, that's the argument that Paul makes in Colossians 1.12. Colossians 1.12 is that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And so Paul is writing to the Colossian church. He is writing to people who are Christians. They are already Christians. They do not need an extra diet to have a, a... a more stricter diet to have a deeper, fuller life with God. They don't need to have the spiritual, the private spiritual experiences like asceticism and worship of angels that these guys are talking about in verse 18. They don't need those type of things to, to have a richer, fuller life with God. They already have it. They already have the fullness of life with God because they already have Jesus. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then he is in you and you are in him. That's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. And we've been looking at that. And, what, and this is why Paul goes on to throw down the ultimate gauntlet. He's, he throws down the ultimate indictment. He says this in verse 19. He says, well, verse 18 and 19, is that this teacher isn't wise. This teacher is actually a fool. Because this teacher is going on to say that you need something and someone more than Jesus in order to have a full, rich, and abundant life with God. And so he actually goes on to say that this teacher is actually like a body without a head. This teacher is not, and within uh, Paul's argument of Colossians, he is constantly pointing out that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the one that gives you life. And so here, uh, he, he shows us that this false teacher is, is not united to Christ. This, this false teacher is not even connected to Christ. That is the ultimate indictment that Paul can give. But just, so just think about that what he's saying, what this false teacher is saying. He's saying you need something. You need something more than Jesus in order to have life with God. But do you really need something else in order to have life with God? That is a, to say so, is a blatant distortion of the central claim of the Christian faith. 
If you say you need something else other than Jesus in order to have life with God, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, you only need Jesus in order to have life with God. Our life with God is, is by grace and grace alone. Jesus did everything, and this is Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Jesus did everything to qualify you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's pure grace. This is not something we do earn. This is not something we can uh, obtain for ourselves. This is something that is ours because of what Jesus has already done for us. And we can't uh, earn, we can't manipulate, we can't do anything else to, to, get, to get this from, from God. And so grace is actually something to celebrate. And thankfully, and like as we're going through this, and perhaps uh, you've even been thinking like, yeah, uh, religiosity is awful, legalism is awful, moralism, all different words to describe essentially religiosity. Perhaps you, you're, you think, yeah, that's awful. And the, the truth is actually religiosity, when you have been trapped within a religious context, it can actually be traumatic for you. Earlier this week, a friend of mine said that, he, uh, he's a fellow pastor, that he's, in, he's encouraging his staff to join him in reading the Bible and following the same Bible reading plan that he personally use, uses. But some of his staff gave him pushback. And one particular woman said that Bible reading plans remind me of my childhood. That whenever I would go to read the Bible from beginning to end or like I read five chapters a day where I have to check off the, the, the chapters, all of a sudden that just makes me feel guilty. That makes me feel, think about the ways that I failed my own personal checklist. That makes me feel ashamed because I haven't lived up to the standard that the, like my church put up there for me. So I feel a lot of guilt and shame. And, but perhaps you are able to relate to her. Because it's easy for us to, like, if you live and, or if, you've, if you currently live or you have li lived in a religious context uh, that really just structures your entire life around what you do and don't do, if, that's, if you're familiar with that, that's traumatic and can be traumatic to you. But the solution to religiosity, the, the, the way to grow outside religiosity is not actually spiritual immaturity. The solution to religiosity is actually for us to draw near to Jesus, to draw near to the one who qualified us, to draw near to the one who speaks words of love over us. Because Jesus says to us, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And that is said because we are so intimately united to him that we hear God's voice say that. So, but Paul goes on to say that he, he gives one last warning. Because, like, in order for us to draw near to God, we do need to embrace spiritual practices. We need to embrace uh, a, regular, a regular Bible reading. We need to embrace prayer. We need to embrace worshiping. We need to embrace all these things. But Paul ends with a warning. He says, don't be fooled, because these spiritual practices, when they are disconnected from Jesus, they're worthless. They're, they, they're worthless. At best, they can help you change. At best, they're behavior modification. At worst, it's religiosity. And here's a, a prime example of it, of it. and uh, and this is something that uh, we've chatted about before, but 
Like, here's an example that really just drives us home. But, like, if you look at our culture, one of the biggest and fastest growing epidemics within our culture is pornography. I remember 15 years ago looking at statistics that, uh, t- 15 years ago, uh, the statistics for porn use were higher among men than women. But now, 15 years later, they're actually about the same. Slight difference, but about the same. And the, and the pornography business makes more money than the professional sports of football, baseball, and basketball all combined. And the, re, the fundamental, fundamental reality about pornography every single time is that it is never loving to your neighbor whatsoever. It's actually damaging, and, and secular research is showing how it's personally damaging and even damaging within community. And so perhaps you know sexual brokenness like this very personally. And, it's, and let me just point out that some of the practices to, to help healing in this sense, to, 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 to help you in this sense, are going to get counseling. And counseling is very good. It helps you know yourself and, and know how you tick and how you're at work. It's wise to have accountability software on your computer and on your phone so that like, your, your uh, private habits are actually br- br- drawn out into a community that's based upon friendship and love. Like, these things are helpful and these things are good. But when you hear a lot of wisdom around uh, sin, like uh, sexual brokenness, some people say, like, well, if only you get married, then you'll stop this sinning. Like, I just want to point out that Paul is saying, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Marriage is not the, the cure to sexual brokenness. Counseling is not is not a, a sure fix. Accountability, there's always works, works around. And like while these things are good and great, they, at the end, only deal with the external of our lives. And Paul says, do not be fooled, in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom about them in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value to stop, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The point is, like, don't be fooled because you cannot stop sin in your life. Like, religiosity is actually when we try to stop sin on our own. It, friends, if you, it, the point of this entire text is that Jesus freed you from religiosity. Your value is not in what you do or you don't do. Your, your value and your significance is not in your obedience or lack thereof. Your, your failures do not define you. So the need to conceal and hide things and to wear a mask is completely gone because the person who, the one thing, the person who defines you is Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough to complete every single one of us. He is, he is able to save us without us adding any work of our own. This is the gospel. And when we take this good news to heart, when we seek to live by it, when we structure our entire lives around it, we'll see a, a gospel culture created in our lives and within our church. We won't condemn one another for dietary preferences, workouts, or parenting, or, or anything else, because our lives are saturated and shaped by the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the basis and the foundation for our entire identity. But what does this look like in our everyday lives? What does this look like in our everyday lives? There's nothing mechanical or formulaic about 
life with God, about living by faith in Christ. But when we say living by faith in Christ, what it does mean is that it means that we look away from ourselves and look to Jesus. It means deep self-surrender in our lives, moment by moment. It means frequent mid-course corrections so that we get our hearts back to Jesus. And as we look to him, he will help us. So let me end with words from Martin Luther. Because Martin Luther was a guy who discovered this about himself. Uh, Luther as an Augustinian monk, and just by the way of, of monastic movements within, in medieval Europe, Augustinian, the Augustinian uh, monastic movement was the strictest of the strict. And one time Luther uh, was going to confession and confessing his sins for six to eight hours a day. And at one point his confessor, Johann Stoppitz, I love that name, Stoppitz, Stop it. Um, he said, and like in classic Johann Stop it, he said, Stop it, Luther. He says, You know what? Don't show up. Like he literally said, Don't come to confession tomorrow. Instead, go and look to Jesus. Great words, because this is actually when Luther took that to heart. This is what he wrote, and this is, what, and that, this is why he nailed those 95 theses to the door. But this is what Luther wrote Think carefully who the Son of God is, how glorious he is, how mighty he is. What is heaven and earth in comparison with him? The law did not love me or give itself for me. Indeed, the, the law accuses me, terrifies me, and drives me to despair as, I, as it constantly reveals my failings. But now I have someone who, is, who has set me free from the terrors of condemnation, sin, and death, and has brought me to freedom, the righteousness of God and eternal life. He is the Son of God, to whom be praise and glory forever. So when you read the words, He loved me and gave Himself for me, with a firm faith, you may engrave the word me on your heart and apply it to yourself. So that when you read the words, He loved me and gave Himself for me, you are actually thinking about yourself, that you are knowing that Jesus Christ lived and died for you because He loves you. Jesus loves you so much that he died. He did everything possible that had to be done in order to set you free from religiosity. So friends, let us draw near to him, the one who frees us from our performance and and all the things that we drive value from. Let us draw, draw near to the one who loves us simply for who he made us to be. Let's pray.